Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Diane, it's May 2017, and I've just returned from Twin Peaks. This is Stuart. And this is Arnie, and welcome to Books and Nachos. And Welcome to Twin Peaks is the book we're discussing, The Access Guide to the Town. I remember when this came out, after the show was gone, Mm. I bought it at a bookstore because Firewalk With Me was still coming, the movie. I still had hype. I still had hope. Sure, they could renew it. I cling to every bit of gossip. But yeah, I was also just on board. If it only continued in books... I think at that point, I would have kept buying the book. Not if they're this book. Aww. Access guides, travel guides. I feel like we just need to do a preface and explain to people straight up, this book, unlike The Secret Diary or the autobiography of Cooper, it's not really a book. It is a travel guide, and those were very popular before there was smartphones and the internet, and vacationers really needed to know what a place had to offer. I used them quite frequently throughout the 90s to travel abroad and in America. They're basically breakdowns of hotels, restaurants, and things to do in a particular place. I've done that in the past, but usually I use Fromers. Yeah, there were several brands, and they all had different clientele. Foders were, like, for rich people that never wanted to get dirty. Lonely Planet were for, like, scrappy kids who wanted adventure, and, like, I'll pay you $5 if you take me in the back of a dump truck to some strange (laughs) site. You know, like, there was always a different flavor. Access Guide, I think I looked at a couple. They only printed, I think, 25 different locations. Their forte was that they hired local writers to look at specific things in the culture. So, for example, if you wanted to learn about San Francisco, there would be someone from San Francisco to talk to you about dim sum and how specifically to order that Chinese breakfast meal. And there are a number of writers for this book. There are five people listed Greg Omquist, Trisha Brock, Robert Engels, Lise Friedman, and Harley Payton. Yeah, and I think other people contributed. I, it wouldn't surprise me if even Mark Frost and David Lynch didn't throw some pearls of wisdom in there. It's a book full of trivia and little bits and pieces that tries to create the town as you would experience it if you were a vacationer. Now, you actually, as part of your move from L.A. to Illinois, decided to go completely out of the way because Seattle isn't on the way there, but you swung up to Washington State. I've been there, too. Suquamish Falls, which is where the Great Northern is, and then the little town far, far away from that where the Double R is and everything. They did a lot of filming in several towns up there. Here, it's trying to be an access guide. But the geography obviously isn't going to be correct because things are far more separate in real life than they are in this book. So you used this as a travel guide. Did it work at all? Kind of. I mean, that was my excitement was I was going to make it work. I gave myself 24 hours in the vicinity where they filmed the pilot 
and where they filmed Fire Walk With Me, and where they filmed this new third season that's coming out in just a couple weeks. Of course, the real show was shot on a soundstage in L.A., but when they did practical locations or sent second unit, they went to Snoqualmie and the region around there. It's about 15 minutes outside of Seattle. I stayed there, and I gave myself 24 hours to go to the places where they filmed, pull out this book, read what they had to say about the fictional location and to see how much might be accurate as to how it stands now. And it was very interesting to do that. I mean, this is a geeky thing. Look, fans only. (laughs) If you want to know more about Snoqualmie or most of the people that were vacationing there, they they were there. It was a spa. I'm here to tell you the Great Northern is a spa where people don't have problems dropping a grand on treatments and massages. And I stayed there. It's actually a hotel resort. There's a very nice restaurant. We spent two nights at the hotel. Now, the interiors were filmed elsewhere. Yes. But the exterior of the Great Northern is this hotel atop this majestic waterfall. I took great photos. We spent two days there. It's, I think, about 30 to 45 minutes outside of Seattle. That was pretty far away compared to where like the Twin Peaks sign is and where the Double R Diner is. We're a little bit closer, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous hotel. But I was a little disappointed. I walked in and Josie was not in the wall above the fireplace. And They don't want to promote this to geeks. I asked the staff and I'm like, do people come here for this? They're like, of course. In fact, my keychain is the Great Northern Room 315, which is Cooper's room. And when I gave it to the valet, he knew what it was. He laughed instantly. They know about the culture. They're friendly to that culture, but they don't promote it. You go in the gift shop, there was one Twin Peaks t-shirt, and then there was just a lot of high-end items. They don't want to be a geeky place for the fans, but they will cater to them if they want to pay $300 to $400 a night, which is, I got the cheap room, quote-unquote cheap, (laughs) and I did stay there one night. Little disappointing that it did not look like the interiors. Still a very nice hotel. I splurged and got some weird milk and honey bath because every room comes with a hot tub. So Mm -hmm. why not just do something crazy? And so I bathed in milk and honey for the night. It's a cool hotel. And obviously this access guide is going to promote it as a great place to stay and a great place to eat. I will say my air sacs never felt so good. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, the calling card is that it is a short walk down to these falls. They call it Whitetail Falls in this access guide. It's not actually the name of it. I don't actually know what the name of the waterfall is. It's the Salix Lodge and Spa that you're standing at, and you can get all the way to the base of it. There's a walking path if you're so inclined for a little bit of a hike. It's a hydroelectric dam, just as they promote in here. All the pictures that I took, by the way, I'm going to put on the Now Peaking site throughout this week. So back to the book, though. I mean, a lot of it is really spent just on geography and a false history of Twin Peaks and the flora, the fauna, some of which is, I'm sure, accurate, as I'm sure a number of these owls and deer and fish actually exist in that area, and some of which, obviously, The Packard Sawmill and its history is not anything that's actually real. Yeah, they wrote the show before they even knew where they were going to shoot it. So all of these places are fictitious, but they did find them all within a close span. The the surprise is, if you go to Salish Lodge and say, give me a driving guide, it's behind the counter, but they'll give it to you for free. And basically, you can drive to all the spots where they filmed the show and 
come on, it's a TV production. It had to be close. You can't have things, you know, hundreds of miles away. So everything, you'd be surprised at how close Ronette's Bridge, that was supposedly 11 miles outside of town, it's about half a mile away from <laughs> what's left of the Packard Sawmill. It's only one smokestack now. Yeah, I saw the bridge. I did go to where the Welcome to Twin Peaks sign was. It's not there. They did bring it back to film for this third season, and then they took it down. The trailer park from uh, Firewalk With Me that Harry Dean Stanton ran also has shut down, but the sheriff's station is still there. It's actually right next to the Packard Sawmill. It's been turned into a dirt bike uh, rally. You can go and learn how to <laughs> drive in circles in a really muddy terrain. Yeah, but none of that real life stuff is in this book. This book is set in the fictional universe. And as such, I found it dry as Packard Mill's sawdust to try to read this. I remember when I got this back in the day, and this is my original copy that I bought back in 92. I didn't read this book. I flipped through this book. I'd be like, oh, let me read about the Double R Diner. Oh, let me read this silly little biography on Pete Martell. But to try to read it from front to back for books and nachos, I found an arduous and excruciating experience. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that, and I don't think it was designed to do that. But for me, in its first conception here, I was just trying to use it. When I would go to these spots, I would open up the book and see what they had to say. I thought it was funny to bring the imagined in with the real, to look at a dirt bike track and then to read about the sheriff's station and how Harry Truman was named after the fact that the real president, Harry Truman, had come there to campaign in 1948. You learn a lot of trivia. It's not a novel. It's not a story. It's not going to read like pages from a diary or tapes, cassettes that are made by Cooper. It is interspersed in a more dry, didactic travel log. I mean, that's that's the format that we're reading here. You, you wouldn't read any travel guide as a novel. But it's also not a travel guide to a real place. Therefore, yeah, you say geeky. I say this only exists as fan service to a diehard who would want it to put on their shelf. But it's also full of inaccuracies. I don't know if you noticed, but it mentioned that this access guide was published in 1991. And it was done because Andrew Packard put in his will that he wanted an access guide to the town made. And so he would devote his funds to the creation of this book but yet it talks about things like the death of mayor milford's brother and things like they just happened because this book came out 91 92 and the tv series though was still in 1989 kind of the same way they screwed up with laura palmer's diary setting the dates in 1990 here They've set the dates, what few dates they have in 1991. Because the year it actually was hitting bookshelves that fans could get it, they wanted to make it seem current for people that were really into the show, what few of us were left at the end of season two. But yeah, of course, the show was set and would remain fixated in 1989 because they were going one day at a time. That didn't bug me at all. And as far as the history, I'm, I'm not sure how much it's going to match up with a book we're covering in a couple weeks, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which I imagine will be a very serious look, or at least a, a non-comedic look at how this town developed here. I feel like a lot of this is a joke on colloquial life and that there's just a lot of events that we all know from history 
that they put a small town spin on. For example, we all know San Francisco had a great earthquake in 1905. Well, Twin Peaks had one too, and they refer to it as a smallish earthquake of <laughs> 1905. And, you know, there is a lot of back and forth about the Packards and the Martells, and they had dueling mills. And you learn about how the families of the main characters established the town. And a lot of that is jiving with Secret History of Twin Peaks, and a lot of it doesn't as well. They talk about Dougie Milford founding the newspaper, whereas the Secret History, I've read that. They talk about him purchasing the newspaper. In fact, he's the star of Secret History of Twin Peaks. Hmm. So if you really wanted to know more about the horny old man who died sleeping with Lana, you're going to get it. Wasn't one of my favorite characters, but uh, I am curious to read that book. I can't wait. I haven't read a word of it yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is sort of what that book was back in 1991 when they were still working on the show with people that were involved in the show. And I think that it was just more inclined to riff. You know, as they were writing so much for the show and didn't know the direction they were going to take the characters, it was easier for them to look at this town through comedy. And so, you know, Scottish culture is obviously very big in that region, Canada at large. Mike Myers used to have a sketch on Saturday Night Live about a store dedicated to everything Scottish. Mm -hmm. They have a whole section here of these Scottish timber games or whatever, <laughs> where people are throwing stones and taking chainsaws to trucks. And that was what Access Guy did. They would actually find things that were unique about a town and focus on those things. It wouldn't just be a litany of where can I get a good cup of coffee? Where can I go for a good night's sleep? It would be, yeah, let's find the pine weasel and give him a whole little moment. There's a weird sense of humor going on in this book that never strikes me as funny, but strikes me as quirky. And I guess that isn't fitting with the show. Like you talked about with the logging games. They have a lot of those around where they discuss various things like whittlers often losing fingers and various bad things that have happened but done in such a matter-of-fact way, almost like it's a point of interest. They never mentioned Laura Palmer that I caught, but they did mention Agent Cooper and how he popularized the pie at the double R. And there is a recipe for the double R's famous cherry pie. And my wife Marjorie did make us one following the recipe before this recording. It was pretty good. Yeah, I, it was a very straightforward, no fancy touches or anything. But if you want a good cherry pie, I, I could say you could pick up this book and you got a basic cherry pie recipe that should please... A lot of people. I don't know if it's as good as Cooper claimed it is, but it's better than when you actually go to the Marty Cafe, oh, which was... does exist. And I, probably the best place you can go as a Twin Peaks fan in the Snoqualmie region is if you go to what is referred to as the Double R Diner. They renovated it, so everything is new, and it looks just like it will in Season 3, and they will sell you anything, including T-shirts, patches, maps, and, of course... A uh, cup of coffee and uh, cherry pie that's very bland. It reminded me of MCL Cafeteria cherry pie when I was there. Very gelatinous. I think the cherry pie you and I bought from a grocery store when you started that Twin Peaks binge watch was actually better than what they were serving at the Double R. Of course, I went there. I bought a coffee mug. Marjorie and I sat down. We ordered the cherry pie and the coffee. Big guess as to why we were there. But 
it was really terrible and disappointing. It was one damn bad piece of pie and coffee. <laughs> that's not what Axis Guide says. But again, maybe that's where uh, truth and fiction diverge. It is definitely a place you got to go as a fan. I love that part of it. The rest of it, there's just not much of the sets or things to see. So I found myself having to read much of the book back at the hotel room on its own. I found it funny. I do think it is quirky Twin Peaks humor. But for me, one of the things I loved was seeing real historical figures come to Twin Peaks. Mark Twain made an appearance and talked about how creepy the forest is. The Guess Who, not The Who, but The Guess Who, a much lesser 60s band, played the opera house and apparently was so loud. Kind of what The Who was known for, only uh, it was The Guess Who. I just thought that was funny. Harry S. Truman inspiring the sheriff's name, his appearance. All of that was fun for me. By the time I got there, I was so sick of this damn book. Because I read it in order. Oh, and, I didn't do that. And I, I skipped around. Oh, I, you see, that I think you have to. I read it cover to cover. And when you start with this long section of the plants of Twin Peaks and the pine cones, and then you get into the various deer antlers, this is a short book at about 107 pages. I read The Stand in less days because I just dreaded picking this book up every time. I hated reading this book. And because of that, the humor... It was like, ha ha, is this book over yet? It's a piece of memorabilia. Yeah. It is not a good book. As far as a book review goes, I'd burn it in the Great Northern Fireplace. Oh, okay. Well, again, I can't think of a travel book that I would pick up and read cover to cover, even if I was excited to go to that place. You skip around to what interests you. You come back to other things. They do have interspersed to keep people turning to every page, even when you don't want to read about fishing or what have you. They do have character profiles that are very similar to the profiles that appear in the Twin Peaks trading cards. The real question to ask is... We get that this is kind of a, a funny look, you know, taking the didactic structure of a travelogue, looking at a fictional place, but is there anything in it concrete? Is there any mystery solved? Is there anything that we would have learned about the season three that they would presumably have made in the fall of 1991 if they had had the chance? I found one thing that mattered. I found one as well. I'm wondering if it's the same thing. Um, you go first. The passion play? Yes, the passion play. Yes, exactly. Every five years on an unknown date in April, members of a secret society dress up and go to Glastonbury Grove, which fans of the show knows where that pool of black oil is. It's a circle of trees that turned into the passageway into the White and Black Lodge. Well, it's actually a vacation destination. If you come at the right time, it's in the travel book. They promote this. You can go for an all-night festival where people in hoods have chalices and swords and presumably act like that hooded dude that they never explained on the show. Yeah, I, when I read about the person in the hood and the fact that they went there, and it's not announced. You, you don't know when it's going to happen. You just have to show up. And it's implied the Bookhouse Boys are the ones behind it, and that is some battle between good and evil. There was also mention of another secret society. I wondered if this would be something that they were thinking about bringing in. The Circular Lodge, a secret group that took over maintenance of the Owl Cave in the 1950s. And, you know, there's a circle motif that runs throughout Twin Peaks. Could there actually be a reason for all of that? Maybe that's something they would have explained with the Circular Lodge. Eh, maybe, yes, maybe no. I also noticed there was this 
a legend of a white moose that prowled the Ghostwood National Forest. I, mm-hmm. I, I you know, I wouldn't. They had horses pop up out of nowhere. I could see white mooses appearing on the show uh, if there had been a season three. I thought some of that was just in keeping with the spirit of mm-hmm. ghostliness. So having spectral moose would be a way to be humorous and still be spooky. There's a lot in there about owls that can pick up small humans and medium animals and things like that. They try to go back to the danger of nature. And of course, some of the fishing from Pete Martell. And uh, yeah, it's in here. Yeah. And again, for a contrary point of view, I actually loved it. I love the way that it's written. Uh, to me, that there's it's, it reads like a travel book, but with subtle humor, which Access Guides did, they were known for. They would give you tips about where to find the best women's room in Chicago. They would have a sense of humor to them. This feels like an Access Guide and a new fresh look at Twin Peaks. I like anything that establishes a place with authenticity. I like movies that walk us through a location. I like that there's maps here that sort of put everything into context. I can connect roads that take me from one location to the other. And for me, I don't recommend doing what Arnie did. It sounds like Arnie's not recommending what Arnie did. No. But I think if you're a fan of the show and you're a geek that just likes the trivia of the world, this is one of the best. It's second only to me to the secret diary as far as great memorabilia. And for me, it is the absolute worst. And I've read the next book, and I'll preview my thoughts. I'm not a fan of Secret History of Twin Peaks either. Mark Frost has promised, they just announced the week we're recording this, another book that Mark Frost is writing that will come out after season three that bridges the time between season two and season three. Guess what? That's what Secret History of Twin Peaks should have been. It should have promoted the series, but we'll talk about Secret History of Twin Peaks in two weeks. But for me, this adds nothing to the lore. It's unimaginable to me that people were paid professionals to write fiction minutia about a place like this. It hurt my head to read it. And no, sir, I don't like it. I would rather read this than like a trivia book or something. And that's what it feels to me. They were like, well, should we tell you trivia about that or or ask questions? No, let's, it's more creative. And again, it really, if nothing else, it takes something that's real, which is Access Guide, and then turns that focus into something that they're conjuring into reality. I thought it was cool. I guess what it reminded me of, and I had this thought several times throughout, is between fifth and ninth grade, oftentimes would be given projects by teachers, write a book, write this, write that. This felt to me almost like a teenage fan of Twin Peaks who has to write something that actually talks about flora and fauna in a scientific way, but they do it all through the guise of Twin Peaks because they're geeks and makes it fun. I did similar things like that with school assignments in early high school and junior high. But these are being written by people that are actually writing episodes, too. I mean, this is not just a fanboy. These are the creators. Right. That's the problem with it for me. (laughs) If this was fanfic, I'd actually appreciate it more and be like, thumbs up, website creator. Oh, okay. You don't feel like this was worthy of the people that made the show. No, nor do I feel it was worthy of the $10.95 in 1991 dollars I spent on it, which is probably like $25 today. Oh my God, and I paid so much more to rebuy it. I, this thing is not in print, and I had to special order a copy that cost me a lot. But I don't mind. And again, I would argue if you like geeking out about 
little things about Twin Peaks. Laura Palmer is not here. She gets a mention at, that you can go see her grave. They, they talk about that, which is a weird thing to promote <laughs> in a travel guy. But I guess she would have been somewhat of a local celebrity killed by her father. You can go see their graves. But otherwise, they were trying to move away from that storyline. And I think this Twin Peaks guide, while giving you no real information about where they would take any season three, either the one that they would have made in the 90s or the one that's coming soon, I do think you can geek out to it. And it didn't help me in Snoqualmie at all, but it really did help put me in that time and place. And with that, that wraps up this episode of Books and Nachos. Now, we're going to be back in two weeks, like I said, with Secret History of Twin Peaks. In the meantime, though, we're going to be back next week with another Books and Nachos that we're doing together. But it is Twin Peaks Tangential. It's not really in the Twin Peaks series, but David Lynch wrote a book or an advertising pamphlet or something along those lines, we'll debate, called Catching the Big Fish. Kind of was a tie-in to the movie Inland Empire. It came out roughly around the same time. I stood in a long line to shake the man's hand, get his autograph, and get an autographed copy and read whatever he had to say about his creative process. And we're going to dig into that next week. So thank you for listening, and until next week, please remember to support your local bookstore, even if it's buying an access guide. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. Now that you've heard this review, head to nowpeaking.com to hear Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Music is by Angelo Badalamenti. Music arranged by Aaron Lepley. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known TV program Twin Peaks. Books and Nachos is an independent television review podcast with no affiliation with Twin Peaks Productions Incorporated or any other company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that show. All audio and music used in this show are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.